In a world full of misery, rage, and insomnia, there's a place you can go to just unwind. All you have to do is take a long walk into the mountains, and just past the black house with the secret garden, you'll find a small cabin. Inside that cabin, you'll find the Hole in the Wall Book Club. So now that the Dreamcatcher's hung and the fire started, we invite you to pull up a chair and join the Losers Club as we explore the world of harmless little tricks and gyrating with Elvis. Oh, that's what I was supposed to buy. A webcam. Fuck. Yes. I bought a new controller because I broke my controller. Dude, I've had this controller. This It's an Xbox 360 wired controller that I've had before I was dating my ex-wife. This thing is like 10 years old and it broke today because I bought Hades. Oh, I've heard nothing but good things about Hades, and I love the uh, the developer. I've played all Dude, their games before. I'm obsessed. It is the smoothest combat of all time. Wait. Hello, and welcome to Hold the Wall Book Club. <laughs> and I forgot we're here to talk about uh, needful things. What's up, my buddy Mark, who honestly has never committed arson, Big Putt-Putt? Like, he would be just, you're just golden boy oh yeah i mean i feel like i'm the number one spokesman at this point for for big putt putt and now they haven't reached out to me yet um I, I feel like i might have something to do with that at the times i may have insinuated that you have a history with arson i think big putt putt didn't realize i was joking and that's hurt our chances yeah it, it is okay and i understand that when when you run such a such a sort of international conglomerate such as Big Putt Putt, you're right. you're very cautious about who you who you deal with. So I get it. Yeah, yeah um, I mean, it's understandable. We'll, we'll get there. I'm patient. So need, needful things. Oh right, yes, that's why we're here. <laughs> right. Oh uh, man, this. Yeah, let's just jump into it. I yeah. Actually, before we jump in, so j just to remind everybody where we're at. So we're going to do chapters twelve through fourteen. And this is the start of part two, right? In sale the sort of, the century. In, in the book, right. It's called The Sale of the Century. And I wanted to bring this up because, it, like, before we started, because holy shit, was this, like, I still don't understand the way that Stephen King, like, organizes his chapters. Like, that doesn't make, like, any sense to me whatsoever. No. Like, you'll just get, like, random... I feel like I could separate the chapters just randomly and it would make just as much sense. <laughs> but the parts, I was not ready for such a narrative shift when part two started. Oh, yeah. I uh, It was huge. It was like disorienting almost. Yeah. Um, I guess like at the very end of uh, our last episode, we talked about that help wanted sign and we made some guesses. Right. Oh God, our guesses were guaranteed to be wrong because it's someone we haven't met. Right. And it's I was crazy. not expecting that. Like, uh, again, I'm jumping like, ahead here, but yeah. Well, no, you're right. But in part two, literally, it, it's almost like it's crazy. Like, I can't even describe it. I, I guess you'll 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 get a sense for it if you're if you're reading along with us. Um, I feel like you'll definitely get a sense for it. And we were in a bad place to start with. And we have just this tonal shift. Like our first major scene, we get uh, 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 Keaton. And he's sitting there at his desk in his underwear, sweating, uh, which been sweat through because he hasn't left the room in forever. Polishing his gun, can 
thinking about, okay, I'm going to go down to the station. I'm going to kill my wife. I'm going to go down to the station and I'm going to kill, ah, oh, what's his name? The deputy. Holy shit. I, I all of a sudden it's, it's like escaped my mind as well. Yeah. I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot the death deputy, not the sheriff. I'm, I will shoot the deputy. Uh, and then I'm going to come home and I'm going to kill myself because yeah. I'm screwed. The persecutors are after me. There's no way I'm going to be able to talk him out of it. And then he gets a phone call. And, and hold on. Well, before he gets this phone call, I, I want to talk about one line of the book. And maybe this doesn't matter to anyone else. But when the book is describing him sitting there and sweating and contemplating all this, all, all this like horrible things, the way they describe him in his underwear is it says his underpants were soggy. And I have never been so disgusted in my life from reading a single line of like, I felt like I needed a shower. After Which is reading wild, <laughs> considering some of the things we've read in this book. I know. I don't know what it was about this line, but when, when the line said his underpants were soggy, immediately, like my skin was crawling. I was like, oh my God. Ugh. Like, yeah. I, I was just so disgusted. Yeah, I, I'm right it. there with <laughs> you. I wish someone had given me oral sex right at that moment so I could have forgotten it. Oh, yeah. Because it's a proven fact oral sex gives you an amnesia. So, yep. 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 Anyway, so yeah, he gets a phone call. Go ahead. Uh, and on the phone is Gaunt. And, you know, we've seen like this straight up evil side of Gaunt before, but it's normally kind right. of peppered in in secret. And this is just, this is like his heel flip here. Because mm -hmm. he's basically just going, hey, I know you're thinking about killing yourself. Like, don't. Right. And basically, he goes on to be like, the deputy is not the the uh the one in charge here you know the entire sheriff's off office against you the real villain is alan alan pangborn mm -hmm. he's the guy you got to take down and yeah just seeing where like we we've made a couple comments about how keaton is completely gaunt at this point right and this is him being pointed at a target and, and it's important to see here and, and i think that maybe we've seen this previously in the book um, so I'm sorry if I if I sound like a broken record or or maybe I just sound obvious, but oh, don't apologize. We talk so much, we immediately get <laughs> everything right after the episode. Right. Like we have to make room. It's... Exactly. So uh, this is a a clear sign that I think that once Gaunt makes a deal with you, he can clearly see what you're about to do. Yep. He can clearly predict your behavior, and actually, we have seen this in the past. Where he told, uh, you know, Nettie Cobb, may, may she rest in peace. Sure. Um, she told Nettie, or, or Gaunt told Nettie Cobb, like, oh yeah, go over to the Keaton's house. They they will definitely not be home. And I and he like I, talked to her he, brain to be like, go out the front door, you idiot. Right. right and, and he also talked to, um, damn, what's his name? The guy who killed her dog. Uh, Hugh Priest. Hugh Priest. Same thing. She's like, oh yeah, he'll she'll definitely be gone. So this is important because it it seems to me because he has a few other powers as well, which I don't want to get into a little bit later until a little bit later. But once he makes a deal with you, it he can definitely predict your future. It's almost like he infects you with some kind of fungus that's telepathic. 
Mm. And see, like we talked way back in the beginning about like Gaunt knowing things he shouldn't know. And right. We had this like thought of like, is he just kind of omniscient? But we've seen there's things he can't see. Like, yeah, he needed he needed the janitor to spy on Alan and call him when Alan was coming. So he doesn't know where Alan is. Exactly. And yeah, it's definitely he. I think the only things we can prove he knows about things are people that he has sold to. Ex right. Infected with his Dreamcatcher-esque virus. Ba -ba. I'm still on the demon route, but we'll we'll see. I'm, uh, who knows? So. Yep, yep. All right, so he, he talks Keaton down from yep. killing himself, and he gives him a lot of confidence, too. Oh, yeah. Um, there's like He basically sets him up to hate the whole town. He's like, the persecutors are all throughout the town. I need you to lay low. Get mm -hmm. ready. I'll tell you when to do the thing. It's this. It's setting up just. I'm. I'm trying not to talk too much about what we see old Buster do later, but oof. Yeah, it's hard. There, there's a few things. Okay, so let, let's keep going because yeah. I think we're. I think we're both pretty excited to talk about some of the things that happened uh, in the in the beginning of this. Uh, yeah, there's a lot here. to talk about, and uh, right. Yeah. Okay, so the the next sort of note that I have is is bringing up a character that I don't ever remember hearing from is like Everett Frankel. I think we saw him like very briefly in one of the background scenes. It was like a couple sentence thing. Anyway, the the huge sort of thing here is that he is supposed to sort of play a prank on Sally Ratcliffe. And if you don't remember who that is, that's fair because she hasn't really been a main character. But if you remember the the young boy sort of brian rusk who is in like i think speech therapy or writing therapy right. or something speech therapy that's like her he has like this childhood sort of you know teacher crush on yeah, her yeah it never got creepy not at all right not i was really. i was trying to make it as as sort of pg as, as possible but you know what um, anyone who's at this point has been here with her <laughs> right we're all soldiers in this same war and yeah, if, if you if you think that Stephen King is not capable of writing a very, very uncomfortable and definitely inappropriate uh, child scene, uh, read the end of it. Um, that yep. will change your perspective big time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, Brian's speech teacher who is dating the Lester Pratt, the gym teacher for the school. Right, and, and this Ever Frankel is basically given this envelope that says "lovely" on the front, and and I think Gaunt just pretty much tells him to to put it somewhere. Tells him to put it in Lester Pratt's car underneath the seat, but yep. make sure the edge is sticking out. Right, so you can see it. Yeah. Yep. And and that's pretty much all we're given. The the thing there was a little bit of his internal dialogue, um, Everett's. Where he's like, oh, that's not that bad. No harm could come out of that. It's not like he asked me to put a firecracker in her shoe. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to point that out. That one got me. <laughs> the good old firecracker in the shoe, boy, let me tell you. <laughs> I try to never do it. <sighs> um, and again, this this is where my sort of... Um, this is where I start becoming very disoriented as a reader. Because we're talking about Everett Frankel, who I I didn't even recall when I was reading it. We're talking about Sally Ratcliffe, who we've definitely heard before, and I knew who it was, but has never always been in the background, pretty much. Hey. And then we're getting into the next part, which is uh, I, I can't even probably say his last name, but it's like Albert 
Gendron or whatever. Yeah, he's like not a dentist. Said. So he he's like the the dentist of the town. I'm imagining like um, you know, a small town like this. There's probably like two dentists, pretty much, maybe if you're lucky. Well, my town is one, and we don't oh. until like six years ago. Everything before that was just a set of pliers and a bottle of moonshine, huh? Well, there's a mule you could uh oh, pay the and you pick it out for you. <laughs> And man, I actually can't remember this this part at all. Like uh, he he gets to his office and there's a note on his door. Oh yeah, that's and right. It's a note from the Baptists. And I'm not. It, it was just a bunch of mean things about Catholics and how they're all mm-hmm. going to hell for their casino night. Yep. And it basically boils down to him calling the priest and being like, and the priest basically being like, oh, if they want war, we'll fucking give them war. Like. <laughs> This is part of our big conflict being set up. You know, we had the test run with uh, Wilma and Nettie. God bless your soul. May she rest in peace. I miss Nettie. mm, She's up in heaven dancing with local heartthrob Tommy Ross. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so this is, we've got, this is our big setup chapters. But it is disorienting because in the middle of it, we meet, a new character learn his entire history and get a big chunk from his perspective. Then go back to more setup about town. It's a weird section. Yeah. My, my problem with this is, and this is why I don't remember this part that well. I mean, I have a few notes here about this, but when you get 300 some pages in or, or however much we're in, I, I don't really remember. Um, and you start introducing new characters. Now, the interesting thing about it is the Catholic versus sort of Christian or Baptist feud Baptist, yeah. w- was actually introduced in the weird first person intro that oh, God, we both I hated. Keep forgetting about that, and right? Yeah, because well, you're trying to. Yeah, right? I think it's, I think it's we very all active are. Suppression of memory. I'm, my therapist but, calls it uh, maladaptive, but I think it's useful. <laughs> right. But the, the thing, at least for me, is I have no emotional attachment to this feud. So every single time it gets brought up, I almost immediately forget about it. I'm right there with you. I don't care about this part. Yeah, right. Like they're, like Stephen King, first of all, I, I mean, I want before I get too critical here, I've really been loving this book. Right. But this is part of it where I'm just like, you're not doing it for me here. I, I don't know where this is going. Clearly, this is something that you want to use in a big way later on. At least I hope you do. God, because you don't right. use the plot, <laughs> boy. Right, because you keep bringing it up, and I literally could not care less at this point. You, because here's the thing: every good book, and this is Stephen King or anybody, is driven by good characters. And this feud between the Baptists and the Catholics involves no sort of engaging or interesting characters so far. It doesn't have a very interesting storyline. Like I'm just, every time it gets brought up, I'm like, mm, okay, I guess I'll read this part now. Exactly. You know? I also like, I, so I am left to assume that this dentist is like well-respected in the Catholic community. Cause mm-hmm. why wasn't this left for the priest? Like, I don't know enough about this man to understand why this note was left for him and not the priest. That just caught me as weird. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, there's, there's a huge implication here that 
Um, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe I get it. Like it's a small town. You know, maybe this dentist is like, you know, like a huge part of the church. Like maybe he's one of the most respected members, but yeah, like nothing really makes sense here. And, it, and like I said, it's, I almost part of it is like, I don't even, I have no reason to even try to figure this out. Right. And, and, and you're being asked to make a lot of assumptions because I had to assume everything you just said to make this make sense for people <laughs> right. I don't actually care about yet. But yeah, we're we're spending a lot of time on something that makes us angry, which is uh, the point of this podcast. So yeah, what precisely. else do you hate about this scene? <laughs> uh, I mean, pretty I much it didn't creep. Uh, right, right. Uh, if if he had a small sort of boiler in his dentist's office, that would have been perfect. But yeah. Uh, by um, the way, audience, it's completely accept acceptable to keep running jokes for two seasons in a row. After yeah. that, you can call us out. Right. Yeah, we're going to keep talking about The Shining. And I I, I want to say we're sorry, but we're not. So nope. um, Never been sorry for anything in my life. Just get used to it. I live like Stephen King. That's right. Uh, um, I, I don't know. They have... Uh, so Albert Gendron, this, this dentist, he calls Father... Uh, bring him to, I guess, tell him about the note. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so hazy here because, again, I have no emotional attachment to either of these characters. And I think we might be both kind of floating here because Ace Merrill shows up in our next section, and he's just a little weird. Let's move in. Let's do it. Let's talk about the character that seems to exist to romanticize cocaine. <laughs> like, Hey, there's a whole song. Uh, cocaine. Look it up. I think it's by Eric Clapton. It's great. Okay, uh, this is. I feel like that song and this part of the book go hand in hand. Oh so, yeah. Uh. Anyway, so we meet Ace Merrill, and Ace is a criminal. He is the standard <laughs> Stephen King criminal. Like it, that's his archetype. But he is cool, and you know he's cool because our narrator tells us. He's super cool. You're damn right. He's super I mean, he's cool. Got, like 50? Oh, man, he's got the fat. Yeah, he's like he's like the, yeah, I think he's like later 40s or early 50s or something. But he, he's got the muscle car. Like, he's got the attitude. You know, like, it's this cool guy. And, I mean, who doesn't love a guy who does cocaine? Like, you know, it's like all these, all these super cool things. Um He's your typical "quote unquote" badass, right? Yep. I, I'm. Yeah. Keep riffing. I'm looking for a line. <laughs> so, oh, oh. So you know, one thing that I wrote down here is that uh, they specifically say there's like two people talking about it. Everybody in town recognizes this guy because he's like a fucking terror. But like, you know, what? Somebody's like, "Oh, that Ace Merrill. He's a he's a bad penny." Yes. And. I don't know how you feel, Icy, and I don't know how our audience feels either. We need to bring that saying back. I want to hear someone say, we need to bring back, he he or she is a bad penny. We need it's to, good. We, we're bringing that back. At least I am. So if you're not on the, if you're not on the bandwagon, that's fine. Um, and yeah, like, like you said, so there's a lot going on here. I think there's, there's a point of the book that literally just says like, he's going to be a part of Alan's destiny. Um, and then, yeah, it goes really deep into his backstory. So this is a huge, this is a huge red flag, or not red flag, but this is a huge sign, basically saying like, hey, Ace Merrill, he's going to be a huge part of this book now. Oh, yeah. He is our, 
There's always one in a Stephen King book. Anytime that you've got your major supernatural threat, you then need your mortal threat slash kind of accomplice. Like it had um, the bully kid. Um, the yeah, Shining you... was the house and Jack. Like there's always that combo. Well, unless you watch the movie and then it made no sense at all. But anyway. Right, right. When it was just Jack. <laughs> it was just Jack being crazy. Anyway, so... And I think I think this is a this is almost like a, a thing where it's like you know Stephen King in, the, in section one did a really good job uh, and he did it sort of suddenly I guess but he did a, he did a decent job of making sure that you hated Will Majerzik oh yeah. right but then he killed that character off and, and now you're to the point where you have a you have a clear antagonist which is Leland Gaunt. And you know that he set up, like he set up this whole situation where Wilma Jerzyk and Nettie Cobb killed each other. But there's, and again, maybe every maybe everyone disagrees with me on this, but there's not enough there to make you truly hate him yet. So you need another character to come in that you can hate, right? And like you were saying, you need that mortal threat as well. And man, Ace fills that hole. I finally found the line. That uh, I had prepared the whole time and we weren't riffing to cover up. Uh, Let's do it. Ace shoved his hands into the pockets of his low riders and strolled away. Portrait of a man with all the time in the world and all the cool moves in the known universe. <laughs> that is something I had to hear from Stephen King's mouth. Right. That is what I do for you, dear listeners. And is it just me? And I don't know. Again, I don't know if I'm alone on this. But if you told me, like, hey, I'm reading a Stephen King book, and I came across a character that's named Ace Merrill, immediately, without question, I'm going to be like, let me guess, that guy's a douchebag, right? He sells cocaine and guns? Is that what he does? Is he $80,000 <laughs> right. in debt to a cocaine uh, ring? I'm sorry. Stephen King did a great job here with just the simple name of fucking Ace, Ace Merrill. Merrill. <laughs> There's no way that guy's I'm, like a good, wholesome guy, right? Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, we get into Ace's history, and Ace is just a, he's a bad guy. Like, from the time he was a kid, getting in fights, blah, blah, blah. And thing, basically, it says, like, things were going okay-ish until he discovered cocaine. He started doing the cocaine, started selling the cocaine, ended up in jail, which I think was Alan's doing, was who finally busted him. Because mm. I think there's a bit where he uh, says maybe, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, gets out, starts selling guns and cocaine, and basically eventually ends up buying a bunch of fake cocaine and uh, is stiffing some people, and uh, they pick him up and threaten to kill him. Um, mm -hmm. They give him a fairly small amount of time to make to give back the money, and also he has to kill the guy he bought the fall face fake cocaine off of but that's just kind of breezed over in a single sentence and never mentioned again so i don't know if that's going to come up or if that's done yeah the weird thing that i thought sort of narratively here is that what was said was the last thing that you have to do and again this is just a weird way of writing this they said that the last thing that you have to do talking to ace merrill was that once you have the money which I don't remember how much it was. Let's say, I think it was like 80 grand or something. Yeah, I think so. Once you have the money, the last thing that you have to do, once you have the money, is you have to kill that guy. Because I guess apparently, like, this guy's always been known for shady deals and 
people are just sick and tired of him. And, and yeah, like he he sold Ace Merrill a ton of quote unquote cocaine that turned out to be like fucking baking soda. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that was weird. Like, why are you? I, I guess there's a there's a part of it where you don't want Ace Merrill to kill that other guy because you're scared he's going to get caught. So you want the money first, maybe. But I don't know. It was yeah. It's it was kind of weird. I'm left being completely uncertain if that line is going to have any relevance to this book. Because it feels right. like I, too much to fit in. I, I what right. It, Who knows? Exactly. If if we never hear about this again, I'm not going to be surprised at all. I'm honestly going to forget about it after this episode. Precisely. Got so. a clear room for all the like ancient right. turtle gods and stuff that are bound to come. Yeah. Ugh. All right. So and then Ace meets uh, Ace meets Leland Gaunt. Yep. He walks by Needful Things and he looks in the window and there's a book there that says that's titled "Lost and Buried Treasures of New England" and mm-hmm. it's by it's written by Reginald Merrill, which is his this is his dad or his grandfather. I can't remember. Actually, that was. Definitely not his dad. I thought it was his uncle. Oh, yeah. It's right. either his, it, it may be his grandfather as well. It's either his uncle or his grandfather. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it goes in. And I, I think there's, there's a huge reveal here that is super important. Oh, yeah. And if you, if you read this and skipped over it, you, I, I think that you really missed something, uh, that is critical to the book because he, he walks in, he looks back at the book. And it's it's the book is simply just Treasure Island. Yep. And then they have this conversation and like Leland Gaunt's like, no, no, no. What are you talking about? Like, look, look back. And he looks back and, and yeah, it's it's the, the book that he thought he saw originally, which I mean, you had the title. I didn't Lost write Treasures of New England. Right. This is a clear sign. And we're going to see this later on that when you're buying one of these need, quote unquote, needful things. It is a complete fucking illusion. And Gaunt even jokingly admits it. Yes, that was crazy. So, yeah. So he goes, uh, Ace goes on this thing of like, you know, this can't be real. Like my uncle only ever wrote, or I'm going to call him uncle. My uncle mm-hmm. only ever wrote IOUs and uh, bills. Like he would have never written a book. And Gaunt like knows uh, Ace's name before he walks in. Yeah. Um, and when when Ace is like, how do you know my name? Gaunt's like, it's not important. Like, he doesn't even try to play it off like he has before. Right. Um, exactly. He's just openly, I am kind of a god. You know, you're going to work for me. But there is a point at which Ace is like, well, how could this even be? And Gaunt like jokingly says like, oh, maybe it's not a book at all. Maybe it's just a, a round um, formless gray goo yeah that right? makes the shape of whatever or that that um makes the person see whatever they need to see and i think he's just being honest right no, no no i i completely agree with you i think there's a lot of truth here and so maybe it's not even treasure island at all maybe it's literally just a fucking gray matter that allows you to see whatever yeah and, and maybe it's off right because he oh he's like oh this is just treasure island maybe it's off because Ace Merrill does fucking cocaine. And so, <laughs> so I, I, and I don't know. I'm speculating about that part, but this is the first time that you've sort of seen the, the, the sort of illusion break, right? We but, almost saw it before when Alan was looking in the window and Gaunt thought that uh, Alan saw him. 
I think it's slightly different, but we almost saw an illusion break just tangentially. This is like right. a couple things back. But even then, it was, it was like a weird thing where like Leland Gaunt was like, there's no way he can see me. Right. And even then, like we, we could we could sort of draw the separation here. Like, well, that's Leland Gaunt. It's not the object itself. That's true. That's true. You know what I mean? So again, we're, we're drawing a huge sort of contrast here where now I'm thinking about like, you know, the card that Brian Rusk has. Like, is that even a card or is it like a just a blank piece of paper? I mean, the thing is, uh, I think it's all just nothing. Like, it's all just. It, it very well could be, right? I mean, like, we know his stock room's empty. Exactly. And he, he goes on this whole spiel about, oh, let me just go back into the stock room. And I'm going to move some things around and maybe I'll, I think I'll find up exactly a, little what you're a ball of spores, a little fucking dream catcher spores. And be like, here is your fucking signed Sandy Koufax card, buddy. Let's go start a neighborhood knife fight. Right. And it's perfect, right? Like the, 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 the Sandy Koufax card was signed specifically to Brian. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And mm -hmm. we, then we have the, the Elvis sunglasses, the, uh, I should hold on. I should say the orgasmic Elvis sunglasses. Cause that's what they <laughs> and are. The orgasmic Elvis uh, painting or picture. Right. A lot of, double, double Elvis team. A lot of orgasm going on. Uh, yeah. With, uh, Elvis memorabilia. Uh, but speaking so. of orgasms, Stephen King <laughs> almost gave me an orgasm thinking about cocaine in how pleasantly he describes it. My yeah, God. Right. Like, if I just want to throw, remind the meadow of this is uh, Stephen King's first book written out of rehab. This is stuff that he's talked about in interviews. So I don't mind talking about it. Right. And uh, cocaine is definitely on his mind a little bit because Ace Merrill makes me want to try it. Yeah, he really does. And I probably shouldn't say that on a podcast, but yeah, it really does. And I wonder if there's a part of this is because you got to think like Stephen King wrote this book when I, I think he was still pretty young, young. And let me clarify young, like 20s or 30s. Right. So and I could be wrong about this. I need to look it up. But I wonder in a way if Stephen King sort of wrote Ace Merrill to be like the badass that he wants to be in, in a way. Right. Because Stephen King just got off of cocaine. Right. And like he's writing this character who loves cocaine. I, I don't know. It's, you know what? I hope not. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> that's, that's my take on it. Yeah, so. uh, but basically, Gaunt eventually tells Ace, you're my shop boy now. Like, you just deal with that. You're going to get this book. You're going to go hunt for your uncle's buried treasure when I give you time off. And you're going to go drive and pick up my car. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then uh, and Ace is just like, all right, let's do it. Like he fights back for a while. But once he hits that cocaine, he uh, he's he is gone. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, that's just a clear thing of addiction, right? Because he even says, like, it's not just cocaine. It's like the purest fucking one, one of the greatest co like cocaine hits he's ever taken. When he asks where Gaunt gets it from, and we get just random Lovecraftian references, mm -hmm. Gaunt tells us he got it from the fields of Ling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, the last bit in this chapter is Ace leaving, and he runs into good old Alan Pangborn. And uh, Alan's not very happy to see him. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that 
it, it, it's weird because earlier in this chapter, Ace Mero went through this whole sort of internal dialogue about, yeah, I know Alan's going to come, the, the sheriff, Alan's going to come see me at some point. We're going to have this whole discussion, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But he he's sort of already on his journey here. So he he pretty much just tells Alan off and he's like, oh, yeah, like, I'll, it's whatever. I'm leaving right now. Um, he obviously leaves out the part where he completely intends on coming back. He has to be back before midnight that night. Right. Gaunt makes that very, or Gaunt will hawk out. Yeah, this this is something interesting too. Because again, this is why I like Leland Gaunt so much. And and this is again just subjective, and this is just me. Like I love villains or antagonists that are more subtle. I I fucking love this. I love the fact that we don't know what Leland Gaunt can do. We we have no idea what he's capable of. And the only thing that he can say is, hey, man, if you're not back by midnight, I'm going to get angry. And you probably don't want to see me when I'm angry. And you have, as the reader, we have no idea, again, what he's capable of. He sort of, uh, he, he looks like some old old guy. Obviously, he has some powers. You just have no idea. Like, all we've but seen that's him. That's part of the excitement. Right. Like all we've seen him physically do to this point, like directly other than the mind game stuff is is creepy doom fingers. And he lit a business card on fire. Right. But when he says you don't you don't want to make me angry. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like, what the fuck can this? I don't want to see you angry either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just so fucking scared. Like, what happens? Do you hawk out like jokingly? And Gaunt, in complete seriousness, goes, yes, I hawk out. Right. And and this is important later, because I, I think this sort of hesitation that, that I'm having right now, like, oh, my God, like, what can he actually do? Ace Merrill has the same sort of hesitation later, where yep. he was like, yes, yeah, an old guy, but, man, like, I don't know, man. Like, this guy, mm -hmm. like. I just don't feel good. I, yeah, I kind of just don't want to, like, the confidence I that he has. Is I this? recently uh, purchased $80,000 in fake cocaine. Yeah, and right. this seems like a bad idea. Right. Oof. Exactly. But basically this uh, Alan and Ace scene boils down to Alan notices the book in Ace's hand and is like, what the fuck? That dude it's, doesn't read. It, and it's and I believe Island. it even references Treasure Island. Right. By the way. And then, yeah, Alan sees it as tre Treasure Island. And then Alan goes to Needful Things, knows that Ace just came out of Needful Things and bought the book there, and sees the sign closed for Columbus Day, I think it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's like, hold up. And he goes to knock, being like, maybe he'll open for me. If he'll open for Ace, come on. But his pager goes off, and he's like, okay, it's the station. I have to go. Check in. Right. And I believe it's uh, they're calling in because they have the... Uh, reports back from the state police on the Nettie it, May She Rest in Peace case. Which we already know sort of all about, but yeah. Uh, all right, so that, that leads us... I, I don't know if you have anything more, but... That's everything on there. Yeah, for me, that leads us into Chapter 13, and... Starting out on a cheery note. Yeah, so this is... Chapter 13 is very interesting because I don't have a lot of notes here because it goes into detail about the true effects of what happens, I guess, sort of long-term 
when you have one of Leland Gaunt's sort of items. Yep. You know, it, it goes through Brian Rusk. Again, he has the Sandy Koufax baseball card, right? And he he's literally and 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 first of all, now he he's weighed down by this guilt of doing sort of these things. He's seen the newspaper report of the knife fight and the two deaths. And he's like, that is my fault. Right. Exactly. So now he's like, quote unquote, sick, which is and now I'm not saying that he's faking sick. But what I'm saying is like he's not, you know, physically sick per se. He feels physically sick, but this is induced by his mental state, you know, which is very significant. And and he even brings up this is very interesting, too, because he brings up he's like, well, I don't remember exactly how this is said, but basically like like recently, my mom's not even going to notice. And again, his mom being uh, so he's Brian Rusk, his mom being Cora Rusk, who bought the the Elvis orgasmic sunglasses. And she's, Oh God, like it goes into detail. She's like, she's in there. Like she's in her room, like pretty much all day. You get this like picture of her just like being in there from like the morning to the evening. And when she wears the sunglasses, she's just seeing Elvis's house. She's in it. She's in it. And she's just dancing through it. Exactly. Living her fucking dream. I thought it was very interesting too, because there's, Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think it mentions a husband. It gives us it gives us almost no information about right. him at all. We know that he sells siding, and it seems like he's out of town a lot. So I'm assuming like his wife salesman. Cora is changed, right? And so is his son, right? And he's just completely sort of absent from the picture. I mean, I think I think literally we get like two or three sentences about him, and that's it. I, I could be wrong, but. The, the main focus on this, and again, I don't have a ton of notes about this, but it goes into detail just about how deep this problem really is. Right. I mean, she's so, because of these glasses, she's completely missing the fact that her kid's suicidal. Like, he is straight up, he thinks about his dad's gun. He's like, oh, that's the solution. I kill myself. Right. And yeah, the only thing that stops him is Gaunt calling him on the phone and telling him, no, don't. Like, you, um, because Brian gets very fixated on he's going to get caught because uh, the woman he talked to on the street when he was running away from Right, so he has this constant paranoia that at any moment, Alan, you know, the sheriffs, the the authorities are going to come pick him up. Yep. You know? And then Gaunt calls him and says, hey, I know you're thinking about suicide. Don't. You, um, you talk to that woman? And if they find that out, uh, they're going to uh, think that you heard the person throwing the rocks. You're not going to get in trouble. Yep. And the only reason Gaunt wouldn't let this kid kill himself is if he has further plans for him. Exactly. Because Gaunt loves the misery. And um, God, I hate that I have to say these words, Stephen King. There's not much more mis- misery than a preteen suicide. It- Right. So we've gone to stopping it. There's a yeah, reason. exactly. And, and we we've sort of been there's been a lot of like obvious foreshadowing of Leland Gaunt wanting to sort of set all these things up and then sort of turn up the the voltage here and just turn right. everything into chaos almost immediately. So I think he's trying to keep all his pawns 
in play, except for obviously Wilma Jerzyk and, and Nettie Cobb, which to, to be honest with you, it, it's sort of one of those things where you have to do a murder here because that's what sort of sets the town on edge, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, he said it was a test of the system. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And it, the system works. Oof. Works great. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I guess to kind of push along through the rest of this chapter, I'm going to jump to the very last section here because we, and then go back to what I think what was the meat of this chapter, the Sally stuff. Yeah. But at the very end of this, we get a quick section with po- a section. We get a quick section with Polly where basically she's actually sewing because her hands are still hurting, but working and feeling good enough. She's singing and then thinks about, I wonder what he's going to charge me for this amulet. Ha, whatever it is, I'll pay it. Whatever it is, it'll be a cheap price because this I couldn't live without this. Yeah, a little bit of more foreshadowing in the poly thing. And this is, again, why I mentioned earlier in the podcast that, first of all, I, I want to be very clear here. I am not a writer. I did not do well in English class. I did not study literature in college at all. But I, li- I again, these chapters make no sense to me because we're about to get into a long part with Sally that is very important. And then we're in where we sort of conclude the chapter with this information about Polly. Like nothing makes sense here. I, right. It, I don't know. Maybe it's all over the place and it feels weird. It felt a lot like the occasional chapter in Salem's lot where it's like, okay, this chapter we're going to check in on the town, except part of it. We're going to focus on a core character and then check in on the town some more. It's the same weird yeah, it's, disjointed it's, formatting. So fucking haphazard. Like I would, I would expect this, like just, just this weird, like subject to the next subject, like this constant sort of, um, I really don't even know the words to describe it, but this is what I expect from like my five-year-old son. <laughs> anyway, he's not even on cocaine. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, exactly. Anyway, so Sally Ratcliffe. So again, just sort of going back to the con or, or the, what we already know. Um, someone has made a deal to play a quote-unquote prank on Sally Ratcliffe, and they are supposed to put an envelope that says "Lovey," which I thought was weird. Um, on the front of this envelope, and they're supposed to put it in Lester's, I think it's like a Mustang, and just the corner of it so you can sort of see the envelope if you if you get into the driver's side. And we've had a couple mentions up to this point that Sally drives Lester's car a lot. Yeah, like her car's in the shop. Like it's something crazy, but yeah, her car's in the shop. Now, I'm not going to lie. I have a lot of problems with this section. and. I probably some people may agree with me. Some people may not. And that's okay. This section is really long and the envelope that says lovey on it has been introduced like way earlier. And at this point I, or like, I just want to know what is in the fucking envelope, but we go through this whole, whole sort of dialogue internal dialogue with, uh, okay. So obviously Sally Ratcliffe sees the envelope. It's she, it, and she goes to this super long di- internal dialogue about like, Oh, maybe a student left this for me, but no, that doesn't make sense. It's probably to him. And then it goes on to the next sort of logical moment where she's like, okay, should I, should I, 
should I open it? Should I not open it? Is this a breach of trust? Like, oh, okay, maybe I will open it and we'll just laugh about it later. Yeah, she like, decides it's like it's some student uh, who's uh, got a crush on him. I'll open it. He won't care. We'll laugh about it. Just quick self justification. Right. And a little bit of Jack Torrancing, as we call it. Oh, that's that's actually perfect. Thank you. The problem, there's two things. There, so there's two problems I have with this is, first of all, in this much internal dialogue is super important when I'm emotionally invested in a character, which I'm not emotionally invested in Sally Ratcliffe at all. Right. Um, like I, as a reader, because again, this was brought up like so much earlier. I'm like, can you just please open up the fucking envelope? Cause I know, first of all, I know you're going to like, I know where the book is going. Like this book isn't going in a direction where you decide like, Oh, well, I don't want to be nosy, so I'm not going to open it. No, it's right. not. There's no story right. in that. So I know that you're going to open it. So now I'm just waiting for you to open it. And nothing that you're saying is really that interesting. Yep. Um, and then the other part that I was really super uncomfortable with, and this is probably not a subject I want to sort of talk about in detail in here, but like she's super religious and – Again, though I'm not so religious, uh, again, I don't want to get into too much of that because I don't, I don't want to sort of offend anyone, but it's like really, really religious. And it made me super uncomfortable to, to sort of read this part. It just again, this whole thing was so weird. And this is, I, I I'm assuming this is all going to tie into the bigger Baptist Catholic thing. Um, maybe. Yeah. Cause we get a bit of, uh, we get our first scene from Lester's perspective at the very end of all of this. And wow, he is about as rah-rah for Jesus as they come. Holy crap. But yeah, it's super fucking weird. I guess to push along so we don't make this one forever. Inside that uh, envelope, he she finds a photograph of what looks to be Lester, but his head's turned and he's not clear with... Uh, a woman sitting on his lap in a bar and his hand up her skirt. And eventually she decides, yeah, this is absolutely Lester. Those are his birthmarks because she can make that out of the picture. And we get this yeah. big note from uh, Judy uh, Libby, or at least that's who it seems to be from, which is uh, I think someone Lester used to date. I think uh, Sally says that uh, he dumped her when she found out when he found out she wasn't really in love with Jesus. Like, Again, the, the, the religious overtones here was so uncomfortable for me. Yeah. Um, it was, it, it came strong. And I was like, oh my God, I feel weird reading that. Yeah. So, so. this note is uh, real explicit about how, uh, I mean, not super explicit, but it's like, yeah, uh, I get real hot when, you th when I think about you and I want to touch your big thing. And uh, don't worry, she's too busy being in love with Jesus to notice. Yeah, so this is this is sexting before texting. Oh basically. yeah, and it yeah is written so high school. Oh yeah, the, that it makes the, it uncomfortable. It's like if you found a note in like a high school hallway, and some kid is writing explicitly to another kid with like. 10th grade writing level and barely that like, it's bad yeah right but it's it's 
and I, I don't know if I can say this correctly, but it's bad in all the right ways. Right. To, to make Sally Radcliffe go crazy, basically. Yeah. So, so yeah, we, we have, and, and, and here's the key, here's the key thing. We now know based on the previous chapter that everything can be an illusion. Yep. So, but here's the key thing. I don't know if Sally Ratcliffe. So the premise for me before this was that Leland Gaunt could make these illusions. Um, you know, if you're sort of either a, you're interacting with him directly or B you've already made a deal with him, but we have no context here for, for Sally Ratcliffe dealing with Leland Gaunt at all. Right. And so, but, but well, again, we, still, we it's do, though, she bought the splinter from him. Oh, and this oh my is God, a, that's right. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. Yeah. This that's is right. Frank being played on her. So it's not directly connected to the splinter, but maybe that's why she, maybe that's why it's so strong. Right. Because this ends. I, don't, with I, can't, her, I can't. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I this can't ends believe with her going back to her house and trying to get that calm, that tranquility from the sort of the, 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 Noah's Ark wood or whatever. Right. Cause she thinks that this yeah. is a genuine miracle that she's someday going to share with the world. Of course she has to, it's, it's a genuine miracle. You have to share that with the world, but not yet. Oh, not yet. I can, clearly. it's fine for a little while longer. It's fine. Yeah. Le Lester's not ready. She's still sort of dealing with that internally. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, clearly the, the, the sort of the, the gist here is that clearly um, she has not allowed Lester to have her body and she has she sort of calls it the complacent lover where now she finds out that she thought that she was sort of in control and then she finds out that Lester has been cheating on her which is again all prop which is all an illusion from Leland Gaunt but she doesn't know that uh so now her whole world like her whole sort of value system is challenged almost to a point right? oh yeah not not religiously but her sort of spot in her relationship with, which is clearly important to her. So, yeah, it's, and uh, just to make sure we're tagging people on the right team, both Sally and uh, Lester are on the Baptist team. So, yes. And I hope that's important later. I hope the, so. With the amount that this is brought up, I hope it's, I hope, I hope at some point I actually care. Right. <laughs> no, I'm so. with you. Yeah. But uh, unless you have anything else on that, um, let's go to the next chapter. Back to someone I care about. But yeah. Buster Keaton. And we see Buster in his office in a much. Wait, you mean Danforth Keaton? I thought I did. But upon the <laughs> reread, I noticed that the narrator exclusively calls him Buster at this point. Uh, yeah, sorry. And that Buster was... only binds the back. Yeah. Right. But did you notice that shift, though? At this mm -hmm. section. He is only called Buster Ooh, by the narrator. Damn. I, I Did the narrator always do that or no? Did I, I'm, did I I'm miss that? I'm not positive. This is the first time I noticed it. I'm going to go back and check between next section. But this is the first time I noticed 100% he is called Buster or Keaton. He's never called Danforth in the section, by the narrator at least. Damn, so I, I really can't remember. I, I didn't even pick up on that. So he gets a requisition from the people digging out gravel for the roads, basically saying, hey, we hit a, a wall. Literally, we need to order dynamite to blow and get enough gravel. Yep. And in a uncharacteristically good mood, Buster's like, of course I'll approve that. You know what? Buy like three times what we need. 
And uh, it ends with him being like, uh, all right, that all that dynamite's going to be in a shed. I have a key to. Cool. So I don't mm-hmm. think that's foreshadowing at all. No, it's definitely not. I mean, of course, we're not going to hear about the dynamite again. Oh, no, absolutely. There's not. no way. Yeah. And then for most of the rest of this chapter, except for a little bit at the end, we jump back to Ace. Yeah. I, I, so again, I know we checked, we talked about it in chapter 12, but clearly Ace Merrill is going to be a huge part of the section. I don't know if he's going to be a huge part of the rest of the book or not, but here he is. So the, the premise here is that his job is to go to Boston Boston to pick up um, Leland Gaunt's car, which we don't know anything about. And I'm still very unclear about why, first of all, why Leland Gaunt needs an assistant. And first of all, second of all, I don't know why Leland Gaunt needs a car or a vehicle. This is super unclear. He made point. a point of telling Polly he doesn't drive. Yeah, right. This whole thing just yeah, seems I'm weird. not sure where this is going. But God, anyway, he's got a hell of a car. Neither here nor there. So I this is a long section, and like opposed to the long section of Sally Ratcliffe, which I found to be mostly like, okay, I kind of just want to skim through this and just find out what happens. Yep. This is a long section that I legitimately thought was pretty interesting. Oh yeah. I enjoyed this. Um, I'm liking Ace. He is got all the coolest moves in the known universe. Ah, I mean, loves cocaine. I love cocaine now too. I haven't tried it yet, but I mean, he's really got me fucking jazzed up about it. So it's true. It's true. (laughs) Uh, Official disclaimer for the sake of Big Putt Putt: We do not endorse cocaine. Like unless we don't at all. Big Putt Putt. We'll do anything. We only we only endorse Big Putt Putt. That's it. So that's that's our only sort of endorsement. Anyway, okay. So I have some sort of sporadic notes here. And so the thing about it is, he Leland Gaunt pretty much tells them, like, "Hey, man, you're not gonna have a problem. Like, just drive up there, get my car, drive back. You're not gonna have an issue." Which logistically, I I found it, it it's whatever. It's a book. But I know, like, logistically, like, if this happened in real life, I'd be like, so I'm sorry, what am I supposed to do about my current car? Right? He's told just to leave it there. This is literally never brought up. Leland Gaunt says, no, you're going to go pick up my car. And obviously, he has some power over Ace and over everybody. We get that. But, like, it is weird that this is never brought up by Ace at all, who clearly is brought up multiple times that Ace has a really nice car. Oh, yeah. And at no point does Ace ever say, like, hey, man, like, what am I supposed to do with my car? You just want me to leave it in Boston. I'm not sure if you've ever met a cocaine dealer with a cool car. They're not generally the type to just leave that car in a warehouse in Boston. Just saying. Yeah, or just leave it anywhere, right? Like, if you told me right now, because I have a nice car, too. If you told me right now, like, hey, man. For whatever reason, I need you to go pick up a car, and I need you to leave right now. My first concern, bar none, I mean, not only the, the weirdness of the scenario, like again, like all these things are going through your mind. My first concern is, what the fuck do I do with my car once I pick up your car? Right? Like, I'm not leaving my car in some strange city I've never been to. Okay, so now let's let's continue with this scenario. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Let's say, I, no, 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 no. Your car scenario. You are Ace Merrill in this situation. You've been asked to pick up this car, and you get to this warehouse, and you see Yog Sothoth rules spray painted on a building, 
And the thought of that makes you wildly uncomfortable. You don't know uh, know why. Do you go away yet? Are you still continuing on? I mean, I think I am. And, and here's the reason why I'm continuing on. First of all, uh, I know I'm dead in a month or or something. I, I know I'm dead soon because right. I, have to, I have to come up with 80 grand. I also have this super creepy old guy who says, like, with such confidence that you don't want to see me when I'm angry. Right. Oh, and also the old guy gave you a bunch of cocaine for the trip. Yeah, like that guy's super cool because he gave me the best coke ever. Okay, okay. So then you honk your your horn out of frustration, and the yeah, door I'm like, fuck it, I can't. Get, I'm like open. walking around the building. I can't. Like, there's no way into this fucking place. There's nobody here, and I slam on the fucking horn, and I just like leave it in for like I I don't know how long he says. Like he just fucking slams on the horn out of pure frustration. Door opens. And uh, there he is. Yeah, he drives right in. Okay, so you're still you're still in here now. You're still you're still going, doing the thing. I'm at this point. Curiosity kills the cat. I have cool. to go in. Okay, so how about when you go in and you see the tape player that says "Play me" and you press it, and there's a pre-recorded message mentioning you by name. Whole thing covered in dust that hasn't been touched in years. Mentioning you by name, yeah. saying, "Hey, take these crates, put them in the back of the car. Don't worry about it. Come on home, buddy. We good." You're going to have time to go dig up your treasure. Right. And let me tell you what I'm going to do as, as Ace Merrill. I know that Leland Gaunt's a bad dude, right? Right. Okay. And so what I'm going to do is I see I, I got some good coke. Not a whole lot, but I got enough to get me by. Okay. And I see I got I got weapons now. Yeah. This is a good time for me to escape to Mexico. Mm, I got yeah, weapons. You, you got a crate of blasting caps. You got a crate oh. of semi-automatic <sighs> pistols. You got a crate of clips. And, right. I'm I am fucking good to go. So I'm I'm all set. I, I got this. I'm you know I'm wiping my hands clean. I'm like okay. I'm escaping this crazy guy. I'm taking all this stuff and this really nice car. This is all mine now. So you're making the same decision Ace Merrill makes. Perfect. Oh, same yeah. point. And then the tape right. says, "Don't you fucking do that, Ace." Now, now you come on back to town. You're mine now. Don't even fucking think about it. Yeah, it's important to realize here that at this point in the book. Like Ace Merrill goes to this whole sort of mental decision to to escape out because Leland creeps him out big time. And the tape player has stopped now for a good time. Like I feel like it's been at least like 10, 15, 20 minutes. Oh yeah. He's opened then, three wooden grates with a crowbar. Exactly. And you finally get to that that conclusion, like, oh no, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna skip town. And then the tape player randomly starts again. And then just to top it all off. You notice it's not plugged in. In fact, oh, right. there's no outlets in the room. You don't even see one. You're like, where's the fuck? Yeah, where's the outlet? There's, I don't even see one. And if yeah. you are Ace Merrill at this point, you decide, you know what? I'm dreaming. I know I'm not dreaming, but I'm actually dreaming. So I'm just going to go along with it. So this dream eventually ends. And, and there's a point, too, where it actually gets in, into the psychology of Ace Merrill. And I, I don't know if it's here a little bit later. But this was almost like a psychiatrist thing almost to, to a point where it's like right. Ace Merrill puts this super hard exterior, but it, it openly says that if Ace is ever exposed to someone who is clearly superior, he will immediately bow down and sort of serve them unquestionably. Yep. And uh, Gaunt is his alpha dog. Right. Gaunt just bit him on the throat. Pushed him down and said, drive my car. Exactly. Weird thing for a dog to say, but you know. 
And, and, and again, so, so some highlights here is this is a, you, you get the feeling like, you know, uh, Ace Merrill's never even heard of this particular make and model before. It's super unique. It's super rare. It It's on E. He tries to get gas. He doesn't think it exists. Right. It, exactly. He's like, the, I've never even, literally never even heard of this. And you get the sense that Ace Merrill's a car guy too. Yeah. He, so he would have read a bunch of books like uh, in uh, prison on cars to the point like, the, he thinks the only car this company ever produced, he knows the specifications of the engine of it. Like he's very shown, mm-hmm. quickly shown. He knows his stuff. Yeah, I believe it's oh, called the, the car doesn't have plates. She pointed out. Yeah, I believe the car is called a Tucker or a something. Tucker Talisman. I've never heard of a Tucker before. I don't know if that's something that Stephen King just made up. My I, guess, because he mentions I'm the not other a car Tucker car. I'm not either. He mentions the other Tucker car. My guess is that the other car is actually real. It was one of those like one-off companies like the DeLorean where that company only ever produced that one car. That's my guess. Well, I mean, once you produce a car that can travel through time, I mean, what else can you really do? Right. I mean, you could produce a car that psychically bonds with you and, Oh, we should read uh, Christine at some point. Well, I think we're going to read it all. Okay, so I'm 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 doing some Google research here, and if, and if I was if I was good at doing this podcast, I would have done this research beforehand, but I didn't. I didn't either. So uh, I, I'm reading the uh, if you Google Tucker car, the first result is Tucker 48. Oh, the Tucker torpedo. Oh, I think yeah, that was the car that he sort of said was the real car, right? Yeah. That oh yeah, Tucker Torpedo. Cool looking. Yeah, look that up. Okay, if you're if you're following along, please look this car up because I, I have a feeling like it looks pretty similar to this. Oh, he even says like it has a three it has the three headlights, right? And this right. car does too. Right. So yeah, um, he pulls it right. in for gas because he notices it's on E, and yep. uh, the tank won't take anymore. It takes like a couple cents. While he goes to the bathroom to uh, do another cup line of coke because there's this big bottle of coke in the back of the car that says "snort me" on it. Yeah, this was Stephen King really missing cocaine, by the way. <laughs> yeah, pretty, absolutely. Pretty obvious. Yeah. No, I mean, you know what, man? If you got to write it out, I'm glad you got clean, bro. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, it comes back, and uh, the gas station attendant doesn't charge him and looks terrified of the car. And there's this brief, like, one-line thing where Ace decides he touched the car, and the car did something to him. Good. Yep. Mm-hmm. But this car's magic. This car's straight-up magic. He pulls through a toll. Toll just opens for him and flashes the paid light. And it's important to realize too that when this was publicized, because when this was publicized, that would have been amazing. It, right. you know, now we have things like Easy Pass, where you're like, oh, he just had an Easy Pass. Or yeah. I don't know what state you're in if you're listening to this, but so I like never do toll roads. So yeah, yeah until you right. pointed that out, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it's all automatic. This is, I was like, okay, when this is publicized, this is probably a big deal. But now it's like, okay, all, all the tolls are automatic anyway. So, so my standard way to deal with a toll road is to absolutely panic, inevitably get in the wrong lane, and then eventually get a bill sent to me in the mail because I didn't know how to pay it at the toll that's my standard it's astronomically more expensive i've had this happen to me too it's like it's like a 45 cent toll and if you blow through it they send you a bill for like for like 25 dollars you're like what the hell is going on toll road so i panic when in the few instances when i see them 
And I always yeah. like end up in the cash lane when I don't have cash or end up in the card <laughs> lane when I only have cash. I'm like, son of a, can't back yeah, up. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to get all heated here. The other thing we see the car do is blow past a cop who's shooting radar and the cop doesn't move. And Ace is like, yep. he didn't see me. He can't see this car. Not only is he speeding, but he doesn't have, he still doesn't have license plates. He's either. got a bunch of cocaine, guns, blasting caps for dynamite and ammunition in the car. Not a great yep. time to be pulled over. Right. Uh, and, and this is, and this is sort of a section that's really important because this is when Ace Merrill truly realizes, uh, at least I think, that Leland Gaunt by and far is superior to him in every way. Oh, yeah. He's like, Oh yeah, the, the car's magical. Like Leland, I'm gonna steal a line from the book. Leland Gaunt knows best. Oh yeah. Even though he he didn't say that, but that's sort of the belief that I think he's he's getting into. Oh so. yeah. And then he gets back in the town with I think at like eight o'clock, so four hours to spare, basically. Yeah. Right. And we get what to me was one of the most unsettling scenes in this book so far. Oh yeah. So. Ace unloads, and we see the back storeroom, which now has these boxes in it. You know, I think the mm-hmm. only other thing in the storeroom is a rat trap with a dead rat in it. Yep. And mm-hmm. at some point, Gaunt turns uh, and has the rat in his hand, and uh, basically is like, Ace, go ahead. Go uh, dig. Uh, he gives him a car that he can use. Um, right. And makes some weird mention of, you're not going to enjoy it as much as you'll enjoy driving the news van. Oh, I didn't understand that like at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm I'm assuming that's gonna make sense eventually, but I just wanted to toss it out there. But basically says, yeah, take this car, go do your thing, sleep during the day. I need you back at eight o'clock tomorrow night. Yep. And then says, Now get out of here. I have to eat my dinner. And then squeezes his fingers into the rat and its intestines pour out into his hand, and then he closes the door. Yeah, and if that sounds weird, trust me, Stephen King did a far better job of making it far more creepy and weird i was like oh oh yeah we get a bit of mental gymnastics uh some jack torrencing from uh ace as he's standing out there like it was a rubber rat what about the intestines i didn't see intestines those weren't intestines it was a rubber rat let's go dig up some stuff it's fine let's go buy money yeah right exactly um and then again i don't know if you have any more to say about that i'm good on that Okay, so we have a few more things. I mean, basically, uh, Lester returns home, finds his car in the driveway. Before before we return home, I got to say what Lester was going for, because there's a bit in there that gets me. So he is out with his buddies at like a prayer revival, because his buddies are cruising the prayer revivals trying to find Jesus chicks. Mm -hmm. But Lester is so gung-ho Jesus, and this got me. Because, like, they had just been playing football or some kind of sport. And he's like, ah, love me a prayer revival. No better way to cool down from a hot game like singing a prayer revival. I'm like, what? It's really strong on the religious overtones here. Wow. Like, like big time. Oh, it's, it's in a way that almost is wholesome. Almost. It never know. came across wholesome as me or, or wholesome to me. It was literally creepy a hundred percent of the okay. time. And I don't know if that's the, my background or anything like that. And honestly, at the end of the day, I don't know if this is just what Stephen King got in rehab. Yeah. Um, but, but, uh, yeah. Sorry. Go on. He gets home. 
I just I just couldn't get over the like the best way to cool down is to sing about Jesus. Yeah, it's out there. it's super strong, and the only way you could really give it justice is by reading the part, uh, honestly. But he he gets home, he sees his car, and he's like, "Oh my god!" Like I'm finally. I mean, basically, I'm gonna summarize it here. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm not gonna do this well either. But he gets home, he's like, "Yes, like I'm finally gonna get laid." She's clearly here because my car's here. And then, like, he gets to the point where he realizes that no one's there. And he's really confused. And then he, like, looks back at his car and he sees a message sort of written on his windshield. Hot pink spray paint. Go to hell, you cheating bastard. That's right. And he is so sincerely confused. If we had yes. any doubt in our minds that that photograph is real, his first thought is, did she think I went to the prayer revival and cheated on her? Yeah, right. Th this is clear sort of proof that uh, none of this is real. Yep. The, the, the photo, the letter, none of this is real. And so he tries to call Sally. Um, she doesn't pick up. And we end this chapter on a scene with Sally. And, you know, the character we see in here, Irene Lutgens, I think is how you say her mm -hmm. name. Sally goes to spend the night yeah. at Irene's house, her friend, because she knows that Lester's going to call her and doesn't want to deal with it. Yep. Irene is such a well-written character because this is the first time we've met her and I immediately hate her almost as much as I hated William <laughs> Duke, but whatever. <laughs> like almost as much. Like so Sally like Irene is immediately like, "Oh, sweet dear, come out." Like, you know, she, sorry. Sally calls her crying and won't talk about what's going on. Irene invites her over and within half an hour gets the story out of Sally about Lester. And Irene's yep. like, oh, you sweet, poor darling. Um, mm -hmm. Jesus loves you even if he doesn't. Yep. And then in her mind, but you know what? It's super nice seeing you taken down a peg because you are a smug bitch. Maybe I could fuck him. Yeah, I could probably fuck him. And I cannot wait to tell till tomorrow so I can tell everyone about this. God, Irene. Yeah, she, she there, there's not a morsel of her character that is legitimately sort of invested into Sally's well-being. Like she's literally there for for a to get the juice to get to get the gossip, right? She's like she's so excited to tell other people Sally's story. And yeah, look, the other part of it is she's like, oh my god, like maybe I can maybe I can fuck him too. It, it's it's all driven by this sort of inner sense of selfishness. Um, I want to read a couple lines from this bit because oh, please do. Yeah, Sally cause... was so pretty, and Sally was so darned holy. It was sort of nice to see her crash and burn just this once. And this is you're getting these intersperses of her thoughts between her being like, "I'm here for you, Sally. I love you, and I'll take care yeah, of you." Yeah, right. Not good enough for you. Exactly. And she asked like. You know, what did you do with the picture? Do you still have it? And Sally is sobbing that she burnt it. And I'm going to read one more here. Of course okay. you did, Irene murmured. It's just what you should have done. Still, she thought, you could have waited until I had at least one look, you wimpy thing. Yeah, she really wanted to see that photo. And again, because her her she she doesn't give a shit about Sally at all. She's literally just here for the gossip and, and sort of the story to go along with it. She yeah. wants that tea. Yeah, right, man. Yeah. Uh, Needs that tea. 
And so our chapter ends with Sally spending the night in the in Irene's guest room, not being able to sleep and eventually stopping crying and just staring at the wall and contemplating revenge. Right. And, okay, so that's pretty much the end. And I know that I, I haven't actually been paying attention to time too much. I, I think we're probably running a little bit a little bit long here, but I will call it an extra length episode. It's for you all, not because we're unorganized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's clearly not that. For you. Do, do you have, where do you think this is going? Like, obviously, you know, we had a part one that ended in a, in a sort of a huge sort of tragic event. Like, where do you see this going? Like, do you have any predictions so far? So I feel like, we're getting like three major sides building or three major things or either two or three here. I can't tell if the Sally left. I think the Sally Lester stuff is going to end up being big, like a big part of this, but I don't know if that's as part of the Baptist Catholic thing or kind of just within it, like a separate thing. I'm thrown off by the fact that they're both in the same church. So I don't know how that's going to escalate past there. We also have like all the Allen focused stuff like Buster is, focused on Alan being and the cops being the persecutor. And right. like, I think Brian might fall into that because he's terrified of getting caught by Alan, but I don't really know. And then, yes, yeah, so, so far we have these threads that are very, um, feel very disconnected. Yeah. Yeah. And like, we've got like some clear, like connection stuff. We've got the dynamite coming in the town while Ace is bringing in, pistols and and detonator caps it feels like these things are going to start showing up and it's just going to be an all-out like full-on brawl in the city like is that what we're aiming for just full anarchy yeah maybe so so i'm going to make a prediction here just because um i i feel like it's interesting and, and I, I i like to be sort of proven wrong later on we don't really have enough information here to to make a really good prediction but by the end of part two, okay, either Lester or Sally will be dead. All right, and I I think that the the church scandal will ramp up and and steam up, and it will be a major part of part three. And I think part of it may be they will use the moral authority of seeing these two people go at each other in the Baptist church and say, well, look, you really have no moral authority because you're sort of, your followers are killing each other. Okay. I, I definitely see that. I'm going to, I'm going to leech on and pull off a variance now that you've laid all the groundwork and done the hard stuff. <laughs> okay. So I think Lester's going to die. And I think I think it's going to be Sally pulls off some kind of revenge that goes mm -hmm. further than she expected, and it's going to get Lester killed. And yep. she's going to hide that, and it's going to be another prank or something is going to set up it being blamed on the Catholic. So I'm going to yeah. vary off of that. No, I, I, right, I think the moral like high ground thing too. I think that's really solid. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I, I think what we're setting up here is. It, Clearly, the Lester Sally thing is on the front burner, right? Like this is the clear, evident thing that has the the most sort of passion and rage. Like this has to be th this can't go on past section two. There's right. there's too much rage and hatred here already. Th this has to be settled quickly, quote unquote quickly. Quickly, I guess in section two, and and I think in some way this has to uh, give more 
credence or, or I guess more, th this hopefully is the thing that gives us more uh, emotional attachment to the religious feud as well in, in some way. And I think that, that Keaton in one way or another is going to bomb the sheriff's office. I think they're, I don't know if this is the same, bomb. I think you're right on that. I don't know if it's going to be the same explosion, but I, I am betting there's going to be some major explosion on casino night as well. Ooh, okay. So you know what? They're thinking I don't know about if it's how be much about the casino night, but I think there will be an explosion on casino night. Thinking about how much foreshadowing we've had about the casino night. I mean, this is literally brought up by the omniscient narrator and the 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 prologue, mm -hmm. um, which we both hated, but. Yep. <laughs> This has been talked about literally since almost page one is casino night. So I think you're right. I think there has to be some sort of explosion. So I'm gonna I'm gonna rescind my my previous theory about the thing is, though, I could see it being the sheriff's office. Because if you've got crazy stuff going down at casino night and the sheriff's office goes up at, at the same time, the cops can't respond well. So I don't know what's going to get bombed, but I think something's gonna get bombed at casino night. I could see it being sheriff's office. I mean, there's literally so much dynamite. Yep. <laughs> it could be so both. Much dynamite. I don't I don't know. Yep. All right. So, yeah. so what are we what are we reading next? Uh we are reading chapters 15 and 16. Only two this time because they're pretty long. Two chapters, huh? Two chapters. It's uh ugh, quick math was never my suit. Math. It's just under hundred pages. I okay. think I did that so that uh because we have two more episodes till the end of this part. Okay. And there's a weird cut if I did it longer. Alrighty. Well, that sounds uh, great. You want to sign us off here, buddy? Oh, yeah. You do the intro and I do the outro. I, this okay. time, sometimes I, I actually, don't know what to say, so I just make you do it. No, that's completely fair. And I, I've listened to our outros lately, especially the ones that I've done. And let me just tell you, I feel like there's, I have a lot of, there's no, like, I, I don't think I can get worse. Right, right. So I'm pretty that's stoked about this. All right. So here's the outro. You've read. One through fourteen of the book, plus the terrible prologue. Yeah, I uh, hope you catch us next week. We're we're excited. Hope you're excited. Um, and yeah, you've been Leland gone. I've been nomming on fucking rats. <laughs> yeah, just been snacking on rats. That's a good motto. Hole in the Wall Book Club is a part of the Icy New York Productions Network and produced and edited by Anthony Sheets. The music in this episode is Supernatural Radio by Kevin McLeod. There'll be a link to his license and website in the show notes. If you want to get a hold of us, tweet us at Icy New Year or send an email to IcyNewYear at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to tell a friend or leave us a review on your podcatcher of choice. Word of mouth and five-star reviews really help us get out in front of more people and let us expand and do more things. More information on the show can be found on IcyNewYear.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.